0: Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much today for your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness to us. And Lord, we want your presence here. We need your presence here. It's your presence that changes our lives. It's your presence, Father, by faith that has brought us into the kingdom of God. But Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high, and that power was to be filled and saturated with your own spirit, the precious Holy Spirit. And Father, as we begin to look into Your Word again this morning and we begin to speak Your Word, we pray for the precious Holy Spirit to breathe on these the breath of life. Jesus said about His Word that His words are spirit and they're life. And Father, we don't come here just to learn more information, but we come here to be changed, to be challenged and to be changed by Your Spirit. And so, Father, as we preach, as we share these words and what you put in our hearts, Father, may the Spirit of God make them alive into each one of our hearts. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 And Amen. Uh, we are talking about the question of why are we here? Why are we here as a church? Why does this church exist? Why was it formed? Why is it even still here? Does it have the term that was being used for a while, about five or five years ago, among pastors, was relevance? Is your church relevant? And that just means, do you know why you're here? And is that purpose meaning anything to anybody? And the way that question was often brought home was, if your church folded their doors next Sunday, would anybody know the difference? Would your community know the difference? Would, your, would your, was the, 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 the community that your churches know the difference? Would your town know the difference? Would your city know the difference? Would it matter to anybody that you just closed your doors? And that tells you really how relevant we are, how how necessary are we and and uh, we had this uh, earlier this year, one of our elders and Uh, one of my best friends and and, and just a significant person in the life of this church, but not this church, but many others. Uh, Lincoln Mossop went home to be with the Lord, and I was even sharing with uh, Ann Hall earlier before the start of the service that I still feel a hole in my life. There's a hole in this church still. There's a hole in the body of Christ. I still hear from ministries in other parts of the world, in Africa, just this last week, and what it means that he's not there anymore supporting them, not just with finances, but with calls of encouragement. So that man's life was relevant. He left And you could tell because of the hole that was left. So the question is: he found his purpose. He found what he was here to do. And the question is: have we found what we're here to do? As individuals, but also as a church. So we've been looking at what the Word of God says about that. We've looked at what Jesus told His disciples at the end of His ministry. It's interesting because uh, at this uh, seminar we went to, one of the things the speaker, Doug Jones, talked about, he says, one of the things that always fascinates me is the last instructions that somebody gives to His people. And that's one of the things that always meant something to me. What's the last things Jesus told His disciples? You'll find that in John 14 through 16. You'll also find it in Matthew 28 and in Mark 16. And that's what we were looking at. Mark 16, Jesus tells his disciples as he's preparing to leave them why he's leaving them here and what they're to do. And he says, you're to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every nation. And we've been looking at that's what our purpose is. It's to go into all the world. We'll talk more about that later. It's to preach the gospel. And what we've been looking at is what is the gospel? What is it we're supposed to preach? And we've looked at the word gospel just means good news. And therefore, the question is, if it's such good news that we're supposed to preach, why are we hesitant to preach it? We don't mind telling people about a good movie. We don't mind telling people about a good restaurant or some good experience we've met or some wonderful person we've met. That we have no problem with. But if this news is so good and it's infinitely better than any restaurant you've ever been to, it's infinitely better than any Super Bowl, the Patriots won, or whoever you root for of won, It's infinitely better than the Red Sox overcoming the curse. It's, it's infinitely better than any of those things. And yet, why are we hesitant? And so shy. And maybe the question is, we really haven't seen what's so good about the good news. And if we've seen it at some point, maybe we've lost track of what it is. So that's what we've been looking at. So the the key scripture we're using here is is in uh, Romans chapter 1. You can put it up there if you haven't. Romans chapter 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed, this is Paul writing, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. We'll talk more about that later on. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 17 says, why is the power of God? Why it's so powerful? For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made known. How? From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So what we've been talking about is what is this righteousness of God? Because Paul, this whole book of Romans is really written to explain and to communicate the gospel, the good news. It's written to believers in Rome that he never met before. And so unlike most of his books which are written to correct some doctrine or correct some activity, this is written to explain the revelation that he received from Jesus Christ. Paul explains in the book of Galatians that once he was saved, and we'll talk some time later on about that dramatic salvation, he was, led by, he was led into the wilderness and for a period of time he was in the wilderness just struggling with what all this meant and Jesus appeared to him and revealed to him, gave him this gospel, the doctrine of the righteousness of God. He gave him the core of the gospel and that is the core of all of Paul's teaching. So Romans 1.17 tells us that the reason the gospel is so powerful is in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And so we've been looking at what is this righteousness of God. And we've talked about the fact that there's two sides to us. There's the side that we're going to be beginning to really look at today, which is the gift that we've been given of His righteousness. But that doesn't mean much to us until we understand what that righteousness is. And so that's what we've been looking at. We've gone back and we've looked at... The righteousness of God is His holiness, His purity. It's God, what God is actually like. And we saw that in the very beginning, the man that God made and then the woman that He brought out of Him were made in His image. They were just as righteous as God was. As a result, they were not ashamed before God. They didn't have to hide anything before Him. And then in chapter 3 of Genesis, Satan comes in to, to destroy all that. And we saw that the way he did that was not just to get them to disobey God, but to take their life into their own hands. And then we saw that the root of all sin is self self-willed, self-righteousness, self-reliance, self-promoting, anything that's self-base is the root of sin. And all the other things we do, the lying, stealing, cheating, adultery, all those things are the fruit of the root. The fruit is what you see, but the root of it is in self, exalting self over God. And so... The, the, so then, what? From that point on, God, in order to uh, get man's attention for how far he's fallen, had to show him in different ways what God's righteousness was like. Because man fallen was blind to God. I was reading in a story yesterday in a book I'm reading about what it would be like if, if we lived in if every we lived in a nation or a, or a kingdom where everybody was blind, nobody'd ever seen in their life, and try to describe what light is to them have no concept of it and yet there is in nature things that would open you up and give you a clue of that such as why do plants grow Uh, why do i feel warm on some days and i don't feel warm on other days so there are clues out there that there's light but nobody can see it and once man fell once adam and eve sinned and broke that relationship with god they were plunged into a darkness and could therefore could not spiritually see god anymore And ever since that time, man has been in a spiritual darkness. Talk about God just as people in that kingdom, that mythical kingdom, could talk about light, but it didn't mean anything to them because they never experienced, their senses couldn't experience it. And man was spiritually dead apart from God. So the whole Old Testament is in essence God preparing His people, God's preparing people so that they could walk into the light so that they could receive uh, what God wanted to give them and restore them back to the position that God had originally created with man's relationship with him in the beginning. And the, the measure of how far this fall was is how thick your Old Testament is. And the hundreds and hundreds of years that it contains—all that God had to do, every step was to prepare man. And we saw that in Romans chapter five, Paul, t- Paul talks there about from from Adam sin until Moses receiving the law sin was in the world man sinned and therefore there was death because of the wages of sin is death but man didn't know why he was dying man didn't understand what sin was why? because he would not sinned in the same way that Adam sinned Adam broke a known commandment God said of every tree of the garden you may eat freely but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat because in the day thou eat it thou shalt die and so Adam broke a standard that God had clearly expressed to him. And from Adam until Moses, there was no standard that the world understood, and yet they were still sinning and still getting, reaping the consequence of sin. And then we saw that the God on Mount Sinai, when he called his people out of Egypt, God came down on Mount Sinai and gave to Moses the Ten Commandments, which was God setting forth his standard of what he requires. So now there's a known standard. And then we saw that Jesus takes that standard and brings it to another level in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus talks about, because the the commandments talk about what you do, your outward deeds, but Jesus talks about them in terms of the heart that's behind them. And what becomes clear and became clear to us hopefully is that the purpose for which God gave those commandments and the purpose for which God gave that standard is so that we could see that if we're going to try to stand before God in our own right what God's standard is and His standard is nothing less than Himself. Jesus says in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes, you will never, in no way, enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, at the end of this discussion, he said, that you may be perfect as my Father is perfect. So God measures us by himself. He measures our attempts to be good by His own goodness, His own righteousness. And God is absolutely pure. God is absolutely holy. God is absolutely righteousness. So when those scriptures talk about the righteousness of God, put Romans 7, 1.17 up again. When Paul talks about the righteousness of God, that's what he's talking about. We have to be perfect the way God is perfect. And I shared with you, when I read that verse for the first time, my jaw dropped down. And the words that came out of my mouth is, I can't do that. I may think I measure pretty well by some of these standards, but I don't measure perfectly by them. And so, that's kind of where we've left off. Now what we're going to pick up here is in Romans chapter 3. We're going to pick up on Paul's discussion of this, because we're going to begin to look at the other side of this righteousness we'll pick up in Romans chapter 3 verse 9 and we're going to kind of go quickly through here what then are we better than they? no not at all for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin as it is written there is none righteous no not one so in case you think you measure up this is what God says none of you measure up there's none who understands there's none who seeks after God they're, they've all turned aside. They've all become unprofitable. There's no one that does good. No, not one. See, I did some things that were pretty good. Not in God's eyes. Not when you compare Him to Himself. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of is on, asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they've not known. Doesn't that sound like the world today? And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That sounds like the church today. Now I wanted to get to verse 19 in the next discussion. Now what we have known, now we know that whatever the law says, that's the Ten Commandments and all the rules that came out of that. It says to those who are under the law, why? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Well the world's already guilty, it's that the world may realize they're guilty. God set his standard so that everyone would realize we're all guilty. None of us are righteous by God's standards. We all fall short of the standard. So the purpose of giving the law was to show us that we don't measure up. And we'll see why. Hopefully that becomes more clearly as we go along. Verse 20. Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. So stop trying. For by the law, the purpose of the law, comes the knowledge of sin. So the purpose in giving the law is that we would understand what sin is in God's eyes. Because again, what we tend to do is to measure sin and righteousness by what's around us. Just like it's interesting because as I asked Alan to turn the temperature down up here because I was warm and now I see some people doing this. And I'm warm and some of you are doing this. And yet it's the same temperature. My wife and I have this constant, it's not a battle, but it's it's constant temperature issue. And it's not an issue between us because I let her do what she wants. Because I want her to be comfortable. But, you know, she, it, it, she's always turning the heat up and I'm always turning the heat down. Because the, what, what feels comfortable to her doesn't feel comfortable to me, and yet it's the same temperature. So our tendency is to do that spiritually is to measure ourselves by what Paul says is we measure ourselves by ourselves. We measure where we are by other people around us. And so when I think, when she thinks it's cold and I think it's warm, science tells us there's a thing called absolute cold. And absolute cold is not what you think is cold or what I think is cold. It's somewhere around 600 degrees below zero. So you can be at 300 below zero and there's still heat there. You just can't feel it because you're measuring it by your 98.6, your body temperature. So anything under, anything under a certain temperature is going to feel cool to you. And yet science tells us that the, the temperature where all heat is removed is something like 600 plus degrees minus zero. And so there's an absolute cold and there's an absolute righteousness. And you may be pretty close, but you still fall short. And so the purpose of the law was to show us God's standard if we are going to stand before Him on our own. And God wanted to show us, give up, there's no way you're ever going to get there. We need it, and this is still the major issue with man. We have such a pride in our flesh that somehow we think we can get there ourselves. We can contribute something and we're going to see why that doesn't work this morning. So through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What sin is in God's eyes? Not in your eyes or my eyes or even the world's eyes. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is being revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is the turning point. This is where we've talked about there's two sides to righteousness. Kind of like a coin has two sides. There's a head and tail sides of a coin. In the same way, there's two sides of the righteousness of God and we're about to flip the coin over. We're about to talk about the other. This is what this verse does. Because the righteousness of God, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law. The law reveals the first side of the righteousness of God. The law reveals what God requires if we're going to stand before Him on our own. The law reveals what God means by righteousness and it is nothing short of Himself. But this verse tells us, and this is why it's good news, this verse tells us that there's a a way to become righteous before God that, that, that the law does not accomplish. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law, Under the law, there was a way to become righteous in God's eyes. It's just that you can't do it. And that's to be perfect. But what Paul's going to begin to show us here is the gospel reveals that there's another way to be made righteous in God's eyes that's apart from the law. Apart from what he's been talking about in Romans 1, 2, and 3. What we just read to show that under that standard, we all fall short. We all fall short. So what's going to begin to be revealed is this other method of being made right in God's eyes. you with me so far? Okay. Now he says here, it's been witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, there are elements of this in the Old Testament to prepare us for it. Verse 21. No, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. So verse 22 says that there's a righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe and there's no difference. The righteousness we've been talking about doesn't come by faith at all. The righteousness that we've been talking about comes by how hard we work at being right in God's eyes by our own effort. But Paul says there's another way of being made right in God's eyes and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Go to verse 23. To all who have, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the law teaches us that all of us have sinned. None of us are righteous. Righteous. None of us can stand before God in our own righteousness under the heat and the light of His own righteousness reflecting on us and comparing us to Him. Because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Pastor, where's the good news in that? Go to the next verse. Being justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What we're going to learn is the realization that you fall short of the righteousness of God. The realization, the word the Bible uses is sinner. We don't like to use that word in this day and age. It's not too popular, but that's what it is. The word sin is literally means to miss the mark, to be aiming at something and miss it. And then when the only mark you can hit has got to be the dead bullseye every time, Somewhere along the line, I don't care how good an archer you are, you're going to miss the mark. So we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of the standard of God. And what that does is that qualifies us to receive it by grace. Because as long as we think we can earn it, as long as we think we can somehow measure up, as we're not going to receive it by grace, we're going to still try to earn it by our own efforts. So the realization of, That you can't do it in your own strength. The realization that your best efforts fall infinitely short and they always will is what qualifies us. That realization, what qualifies us to receive it as a free gift. We've got to give up trying to earn it in order to receive it as a free gift. Okay. Being justified freely, freely freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this is the second side of the righteousness of God. It is a free gift. And that's the good news. The good news is what you could never do. It was hopeless. God did for you. Now let's go over and look Let's go over and look at Romans chapter 7. As I said, the book of Romans is a revelation of the good news, of the gospel. So we're going to roam through Romans here a little bit. By the way, you don't have to put this up. I don't think you have it, but... Romans 6:23 says the wages of sin or the results of sin the fruit of sin is death. Spiritual death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now the beginning of chapter 7 Paul's trying to explain to them that we we've died to the law. We're not under the law anymore. But and just as a man when he, he is bound to his wife or a woman's bound to her husband until he or she dies and then you're free to marry another so we were bound to the law until Christ came and we died to the law so that now we're free to be married to or joined to Christ we're not free to do our own thing the law hasn't gone away but but we're not bound to it anymore we're not bound by something we could never live up to as that was the only hope we had and could never live up to it. Now we've been separated from that and we've been married or joined to Christ who is our righteousness. And we'll walk, we'll walk through this together. But we're going to pick up here uh, starting in verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, that means we were out trying to live our own right for God's way on our own, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law we're at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Have you ever noticed that the more you try not to do something, the more attractive it gets? The more, yeah, the more, the more you decide, I'm not going to have dessert tonight. Tonight, I'm not going to have dessert. I'm not going to go get another dish of ice cream tonight. I'm not going to do it. And the more you determine not to do something the more attractive it seems to you, it seems to call out from the freezer, John, John, I'm in here all alone. The whole purpose for which I was double churned was so that you could enjoy me tonight. It's been a warm day. You've been so good today. Treat yourself tonight. And it just calls to me. And the next thing I know, I'm over there opening the freezer, <laughs> answering the call of the, for, of, the, of the vanilla ice cream or whatever it is that you like. And the more you determine not to do something, the more you want to do it. And that's the nature of flesh. And the reason we're all chuckling or hiding our head or, or responding is we all have experienced the same thing. Now God's smart enough to know that if He tells us not to do something, we're going to want to do it. So why would God give us rules and tell us not to do it knowing that's just going to excite in us a desire to do it? Because God wants us to see exactly what that fleshly desire is like and realize I don't have the strength to overcome it. I don't have the ability to overcome it. I can't do it myself. Really it's coming to the point of realizing I am spiritually bankrupt and that's what qualifies you to receive the free gift of grace. That's what not qualifies not a good word. That's what opens us up to stop trying on our own efforts and receive something that's a free gift. You ever try to give something to somebody and, 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 and they don't want to take it or they want to pay you for it? They want to make up for it? So I was raised in a family where, where whatever was done to you had strings attached. Some of you were raised in those kind of families too. Which means whatever somebody did good for you, somewhere down the line they were going to pull that back and ask you, well, I've done this for you, and I've done that for you, and I've done this for you. I was reading something that I've been reading and studying this, this summer about what really touched me about God's character and God's nature. Nowhere in the Bible does God talk to us about how much it cost Him to send Christ to the, to the cross. He tells us the cost so we would understand how much He loves us but never from His side. Do you know what this costs me to do to you? for you? Do you know what you cost me? You never hear that from God. Why? He's not thinking of Himself. There were no strings attached. It's a free gift. Christ was given to everybody that would ever breathe air knowing that the majority would never accept Him and yet He was freely given. That's God's nature. That's God's character. That's what God is like. That's what Christ is like. That's what Jesus is like. And so we have to come to that realization. And so this scripture is telling us that while we're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to kill us. But now we have been delivered from the law having died to that which held us were held by so... That we would serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. This was the issue Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They lived by the letter of the law to the point that they washed, because the law became more than the Ten Commandments. They took those Ten Commandments, and I mean, there were things God added to them in, in Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, and even some in Deuteronomy. But then the, the Pharisees took it and they multiplied it out to over 600, like 612 rules, including how you were to wash your cup. Not just wash it because it was for sanitary reasons, but you were to wash certain parts of it a certain way with certain materials and certain cloths. Everything had to be handled just a certain way. And they were perfect at keeping that. But Jesus, we talked about this before, said yeah, you do it on the outside, but you're like whitewashed sepulchres. And I've told you, whitewashing, we don't use it very much anymore, but whitewashing was a way of a water-based paint that you could cover over like a fence or something like that, and it made it look white until you got a rainstorm, and then it would wash off. It wasn't permanent. And he said, you're whitewashed. So you look nice on the outside until the pressure comes. You're whitewashed sepulchres, which is a Old English word for empty tomb. So on the outside, you look great, but inside, in your heart, you're empty. There's no God in you. He's not living in you. And that's why the only people he really got upset with was them because they were hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? Something that represents one thing on the outside different from what it is on the inside. And they were hypocrites. Okay. So notice he says here that, the, it, that we might serve in the newness... Of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The letter is trying to live up to what the law says. And God doesn't want us to try to live up to what the law says. God wants us to live in the newness of the Spirit. Okay, let's move on here. Verse 7: What shall I say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. See, some want to throw the, some want to throw the law out and say, well, the law doesn't apply anymore, so we're not under the law. No, we're not under the law, but the law hasn't gone away. It's still God's right. God's still just as righteous as He was before Jesus came. The difference is, is once you come to Christ, He puts in you His ability to live it out, but your standing before God is not based on how well you do that. We'll see that as we go along here. Verse 7, what shall we say to these things? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. In other words, you can't have any ice cream tonight, makes me want to have it all the more. For apart from the law, sin was dead, but I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The commandment, which was to bring life, I found brought death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by the way, it always will deceive you, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good." Has then that which has become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear to be sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So stop there a second. What Paul said, because this is kind of convoluted. If you don't go through this slowly and pick it up, but it's worth it. It's worth the effort. So we sing at the end of that verse so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The commandment was to show us how sinful we are on our own. Why? Because God wants to look down His nose at us and point His finger at us. If He wanted to do that, He didn't need any commandments. He did it so we would see what we're like in His sight. Not in each other's sight, not in my own sight, so that we could see how we measure up to God on our own. Standing before Him on Judgment Day, before Him the way Adam and Eve did, without my wife there, without your pastor there, just on your own, what you've done standing before God, totally your life totally naked before Him, what does God see? We're all exceedingly sinful. And the law came to show us that. That was its purpose that it might lead us to Christ that it might lead us to realize I'm in trouble if I've got to stand before God on what I do at all that I am in serious trouble if his standard is what that law says because remember it's not whether you keep the Ten Commandments during your life it's whether you keep them perfectly not just with your deeds but in your heart and in your thought life that will get most of us right there and we're not going to go back over that All right. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, we ought to be able to relate to the next part of this. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I don't practice. But I hate that I do. What I hate, I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Now, most, most theologians believe that at this point, Paul's now talking about his experience as a Christian. Not just before he came to Christ, but his experience as a Christian. Because otherwise, what does this mean to us other than we want to share the good news? Paul's going to talk here about his own struggle to keep the commandments once he's saved. And this ought to, we ought to be able to relate to this also. For then, if I, if I do what I det- will or determine not to do, I agree that the law is good. So when the law says, thou shalt not covet, but my neighbor's got a brand new car and they're ungodly, they ever go to church, got a promotion, and I just got a pink slip and I go to church and I tithe, wait a minute, this is something wrong here, I ought to have what he has, that's coveting. And the more I know it's wrong to covet, the more I want to covet. But the fact that I know it's wrong to covet means I know that the law is good. That's what he's saying there. So I know that the law is good and yet what I find is the more I want to do what the law says, the more I don't do it. Go to the next verse. But now it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. Go ahead, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Anybody relate to that? Amen. The more I know what's, the more I read this and know what God requires, and the more I determine. Boy, I heard that today. Boy, I'm I'm never going to do that again. And the very first thing you do before you get in the parking lot, <laughs> or before you get home, and and it, <laughs> here. Have you ever, you know, been reading books or scriptures or hear a message about walking in love, and it just, oh, because because God's in you and love is in you, it just stirs up. Oh, I know, I'm, I'm determined. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna love everybody. And you out of fear, out of fear, so filled with love. And before you get home, your husband says something to you or your wife says something to you. And all of a sudden, you find there's an anger in you. You don't even know where it came from. <laughs> or your kids. I remember one time leaving church. and this is why I wasn't on staff at this time. I was leaving church, and we were going to go out to get something to eat. And we had, I think, two of our kids were still at home. The twins were still at home. And, all right, where do you want to go eat? And they started getting into argument about where we're going to go eat. I thought, Aren't you, it's a It's a meal. <laughs> You're blessed to go. We're all blessed to be able to go and get a meal. Don't fight over it. And I got so upset at them, I just went straight home. I said, Have a bologna sandwich. I was mad at everybody. <laughs> the more you determine to walk in love, the more opportunities you will have to apply what you've determined to do and somewhere along the line you're going to slip for I know that in me that is in my flesh there's nothing nothing good dwells this is why we have to learn to be dominated by our spirit and not by our flesh the definition of a carnal Christian is a Christian that's dominated by their flesh and they have never matured that's why Paul writes the Book of the letter to the first the first letter to the Corinthians. First Corinthians starts out by saying, You're still carnal. You're still walking around like mere men, because there's envy and strife and jealousy among you. And then he talks about how to mature and get over that. Okay. We're going to go on now to verse. It gets better. Verse 19. For the good now we're going to go to the other side. The good that I will to do, I don't do. But the evil that I will not to do, that's the very thing I go out and do, I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. I find then this law or principle that evil is still present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inner man, that's your spirit man, the real you. But I see another law at work in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Verse 24 Oh wretched man I can't believe Paul just wrote Oh wretched man This is the cry of his heart Oh wretched man that I am Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the next verse is the good news. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord So then with the mind I serve the law of God but with the flesh the law of sin. Understand this. This letter along with all the other letters in the New Testament was not written in chapters and verses. It was written actually in the original Greek in just one long run on sentences. So the editors have broken it up into verses. The editors have broken it up in chapters so that I can tell you go to chapter 8 verse 1. So No, I didn't mean back there yet. (laughs) They're very listening, they're very obedient. (laughs) I want you to understand that because what we're going to begin to read is is the answer. Oh, wretched man that I am! He's talking about the struggle that goes on inside of him between his flesh and his spirit. His spirit, man, once you're born again, wants to obey God, but your flesh, the harder you try, the more you can't do it. I was reading about, through commentary in this last summer, and somebody noted something, with a book, not a commentary, somebody noticed something. In none of these verses do you find any mention of the Holy Spirit but the first personal pronoun is all over the place. I will, but I can't. I determine, but I don't. I want to, but I can't. So Paul's talking here about once you're saved and you see what the law requires, still trying to live up to it. And Paul finally says, All I find is in me, down in my spirit, man. I want to obey God because God's nature is now in me. But the harder I try with my own effort, the more I fall flat on my face. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 8, verse 1 now. There is therefore now no. Con-, this is the good news. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation that's being condemned to hell. That's judgment for your sins. There is a judgment we go through as Christians where we stand before the, the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards for our faithfulness for what we've done for him in this flesh but that's not a judgment for condemnation that's the great white throne judgment this is so therefore for if, Christ, if you are in Christ and if he dwells in you there is no condemnation for you because he took well we're going to see it why? Oh, look, it says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Some translations don't put that in there. But that's talking about basically who don't walk trusting in their flesh, but instead walk trusting in the work of the Spirit. Verse 2, and here's why. Here's the crux of it. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was what we've been studying. That's the law that if you ever sin, you die. If you slip once, it's over. And the law of the Spirit of life, the law of the Holy Spirit, who brings life in Christ Jesus, has set you free. Set you free! We sing here worship songs about I've been set free. This is the freedom. I'm no longer under the fear and bondage that if I slip up once we don't want to but if I slip up once it's all over. All that condemnation comes back in on me. I've been set free from that. That's good news! For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This is now going to begin to explain why. Verse 3. And now we understand this. For what the law could not do thou shalt not kill Thou shalt not commit adultery. Not just in your deeds, but in your heart. All the things we've been studying. The law could not make us righteous. Why? Because it was weak through the flesh. It was weak through the flesh because the law required on your efforts and my efforts to live up to it. And because our flesh has inherited that sin tendency. Because our flesh still wants to do wrong, no matter how hard you try, you can't make it. It's like trying to drive a car on the highway. Those of you who are old enough to remember cars before power steering, I won't ask for a show of hands. But when your car got out of alignment, you had to fight even to park the car, to fight to keep it on alignment and see your, your wheels are out of alignment. Your flesh is out of alignment and so is mine. It, is, has, it has a bent. For wheels to be out of alignment, you let go of the steering wheel, what happens? It goes off into a ditch. You let go of your flesh, it will lead you into a ditch. And under the law, it was as if there was no, it's as if you had to continue to hold it, which means you could never take your hands off the wheel. You could never be distracted. Because you get distracted once, you go into a ditch. But this verse says when you come to Christ, he gives you power steering. So you can now control it. I wouldn't suggest you do it, but you can control it with one finger. Why? But you still have to control it. The power steering doesn't control your car for you. The power steering comes along behind, beside you to help you and enable you to do what you know you to do. So what the law could not do for it was weak through the flesh, God did. Oh, you didn't get that. What the law couldn't do for you, what you couldn't do, what you couldn't do to make yourself right in God's eyes, God just plain did it for you. God did it. Not, we'll do it when you get to heaven. Not, we'll do it when you get your life straightened out. What you could not do for yourself, God just plain did it for you. And how did He do it? By sending His own Son who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Don't get hung up in the word likeness. That doesn't mean He didn't come really in the flesh. In the likeness of flesh men, his flesh was just a little different than yours. You and I were born with flesh where the wheels were already out of alignment. <laughs> we were born with that tendency in sin. But Jesus was born, this is why he had to be born of a virgin. He was born, the, the, the human part of him came from Mary. But the other part of him, the father part of him, the mother came from God's own spirit. So his flesh was born without the tendency to sin, and yet it was capable. So every bump in the road, he had to make the decision to keep it straight. Every temptation, he had to choose to not sin. He had to make the same choices you and I had to make, but he didn't sin. So God sent his own son in, in, in flesh like ours, On account of sin or for sin. And he condemned your sin and my sin in his flesh. In order to solve the problem for you. In order to do it. In order to make you righteous. God sent his own son. Put on human flesh. Dealt with all the stuff you and I have to deal with. And in that flesh, God condemned your sin and my sin, all of it. God condemned that sin in his flesh. That's why there's now no condemnation. Because the, it, the condemnation has already been meted out. It's not like God's withholding it. God has poured it out. We didn't go on and read further in chapter 3, but it says He did this so that He might be the just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ Jesus. God had to pour out the condemnation for all of our sin on His Son. Or else God's forgiveness would be the way you and I tend to forgive our children by just looking the other way. See, grace doesn't mean God looks the other way. Because then He's no longer just. He's no longer righteous. He's compromised His righteousness because He loves us. So God's problem was, I can't compromise who I am. I can't compromise my righteousness. I can't bend it at even an iota. So what do I have to do? I've got to pay. The, I've got to, the price has to be paid. But he did the unthinkable. That's why it says in Ephesians, it says, "For for the, prince of, the princes of the air couldn't understand. They never dreamed on them that God he would crucify the Son of Glory. Never entered into Satan's mind. That's why Satan fell into the trap. The cross was a trap. It looked as if Satan had him." It looked as if he were defeated. Even his own disciples thought he was defeated. But that was the trap. The trap was the very thing Satan could never conceive of. That God would love things like you and me so much. You and I could have such a value to Him. Who could never measure up. Who were prideful, sinful, boastful, liar, all the stuff we do wrong, even the stuff we just harbor in our heart. All that stuff, Satan looks and says, you're the scum of everything. God would never, why would God do this? It never entered in his mind because he doesn't, con, he has no concept of love, that kind of love. What you and I could not do, God did. He did it. And how did he do it? He condemned our sin in his own son's flesh. That's how God could still be just and also be the one who justifies the justifier of those who believe in Christ. I'm going to do a series in the future called The Power of the Cross because it comes down to that. There is such a power in the cross and I know some of you want me to put a cross back up here and we will but we've got to do it a way that doesn't interfere with what we're doing here. The power of the cross, the power of a place of death. How could there be a power in something where somebody dies? Well, the death paid for our sins and the power of it is He's no longer in the grave. The power of it is in the resurrection. Go back and put that verse up and we're going to close here in a minute. Go to the next verse. So that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. What the law could not do because of the weakness of our flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh. He condemned our sin in His flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk trusting in, relying on our flesh, but who walk or live our lives trusting in and relying on the work of the Spirit of God in us. My brothers and sisters, this is the good news you and I and everyone that's ever lived that's ever committed one sin was condemned to an eternity in hell a place of unbelievable horror and pain and fire and there are degrees of it according to the Bible talks about a, a lake of fire Place full of brimstone and ashes. We don't, don't have trouble understanding that, but those are st- stones that burn, and and the the word for hell that the old Te- New Testament uses is Gehenna. One of them, and it refers to a trash heap outside of Jerusalem where there was a constant fire burning. It's such a terrible place that the demons don't want to go there. When Jesus was going to cast the legion of demons out of the madman in Gadara, they pled with him not to send him into 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 hell but to be go into the pigs that were there. Even they don't want to go and they've seen it. And That's where all of us were condemned by our own acts and our own deeds and our own thoughts. God loves you so much. Ephesians 1. You can oh, put it up there. I want to say this. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him. Next verse before the foundation of the world why? that we should be holy and without blame before him in love before the foundation of the world before you ever sinned before you ever broke any of God's commandments God had planned ahead of time what he was going to do for you and his purpose his goal is so that he, but through Christ you and I could stand before him holy as He is, and without blame before Him. In Christ, you and I can do that. Apart from Christ, we stand on our own. And it goes on in chapter 2, we're not going to turn there right now, but it goes on in chapter 2 to say what motivated Him. It's there, it says, in love, but it goes on in chapter 2, verse 4, to say, because of. The Amplified says, in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which God loves us. When we were dead in our sins and transgressions, He made us alive together in Christ. God did this because He couldn't stand to live eternally without you and without me. The value that you have in God's eyes is the value of His own Son that He sacrificed so that He could bear the condemnation so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may be here this morning and you may or may not have ever heard this before but you don't know for sure whether that applies to you. The two little the words in there that make it apply is in Christ Jesus. All that God's provided here Forgiveness, grace, to be able to stand before him on the judgment day, holy and without blame, is all in those words, in Christ Jesus. You're either going to stand before him in your own merits, in your own life, and we've all seen this morning through the scriptures that falls woefully short, or you're going to stand before him in Christ. When God sees you, he sees Christ, because we're in him. You're just as much his child as Christ is his child. You're just as much have his favor and love as Jesus has his favor and love because you're in him. You've been joined to him. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature.